My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here, and generally it's my privilege to open God's Word and to preach and uh, to give, some, give the meaning uh, of the text. This morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to be working through uh, verses 4 through 14. And as you adults turn there, I'm going to dismiss Hubtown Kids. So Hubtown Kids, um, if you are, uh, what, what are the ages? I always forget. Uh, ages 3 to 5, you're in the blue station. You're going to be heading this way. And this morning, you're going to be learning about the time that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Uh, if you're in the gray station, uh, ages 6th to 5th grade, you're going to head to my right. And uh, you're going to be learning this morning about something very, very um, relevant to our text this morning that we're walking through. The gray station is going to be learning the answer to this question. What sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? What sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? Here's the answer from the catechism question. One who is truly human and also truly God. One who is truly human and also truly God. As we regularly encourage you to do, I want to I ask you to reach out, uh, you know, talk, uh, t- uh, talk to a child after service, maybe in your life group, ask him this question. I say that all the time. I'm just going to go ahead and call you on this. Raise your hand if you've ever asked a kid one of the catechism questions. Okay. All right. Now, most of, the, most of you were parents or workers. <laughs> uh, for the rest of you, I'll continue to, uh, to drone on and to pray for your soul. Uh, <laughs> It is a job that we've all been called to do, and so uh, I I jest, but seriously. Um, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. This is uh, found in the hardback black black Bible in front of you on page 1187. So if you you don't have a copy this morning, you want to borrow that, you're welcome to do that. It's 1187, toward the uh, right side of the book, almost towards the end. This morning we're going to be taking a look at one of the uh, favorite words of the author of the book of Hebrews. If you're new, this is your first time in this ser- uh, the series. We just got started, and we don't know who wrote this. Uh, aside from, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. We know a few things about this, uh, this man. We know that he was a pastor. We, knew that he, we know that he loved God's people. Uh, we know that he knew the Old Testament very well. And, uh, and uh, he was a fiery guy who loved Jesus. And so that's what we know about this book. And he wrote it to a group of Jews. We don't know where they were at. Uh, we know a little bit about what they were facing. Um, but we know that this guy loved to use the word better. You ever meet somebody that just overuses a word sometimes? I probably do. You guys, uh, you'll give me a complex if you let me know. But maybe I could be helped in that way. Uh, but there's all, we all go through stages in life where we use a word more than we should. Maybe it's like, or pretty, or good, or something like that. Well, if the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, were to overuse a word, which he hasn't, but if he were, it would be the word better. He really, really likes that word. And there I go with really. Better is a comparative word. We use it to establish superiority of things and of people. Better shampoo. This is better than that. Better deal on gasoline. Head down there and get that. Better restaurants. Don't waste your money or your time. You only get three meals a day. You better make it count. Go to the better restaurant. Better president, etc., etc., etc. Apparently, the author has not heard this uh, conventional wisdom in the phrase, comparison is the thief of joy. Or I doubt that's really what he meant, but we're going to run with it anyway. 
I want you to think about this idea. Is comparison really the thief of joy? That's what the book of Hebrews wants us to actually do. It wants us to compare things. And this morning, we'll begin to compare Jesus to angels. We won't stop there. We'll move on, and we'll compare him to many other things. And we'll find each time, in fact, I'm going to let it out of the bag right now, Jesus is always better. We're going to find out. Then how in the world can this also be true, this conventional piece of wisdom, comparison is the thief of joy? Maybe we'll find out at the end that that's actually not true at all. We'll wait and see. We'll find out. The Word of God says this in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. Speaking of Jesus, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels wind and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, O Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? May God bless the reading of his word. Let's, let's pray together again. Father, as we always do, we stop upon the public reading of your word and we ask that you bless it. Father, we pray that your people this morning would hear your voice through your words. Father, we pray that we would see Jesus this morning. We pray that you'd reveal him to us more clearly. Father, some of us for the first time are, are being confronted with the God of this universe, the creator and sustainer of their lives, and the one who offers redemption. They're, they're being invited into that this morning. And we celebrate that. Would they see Jesus and be drawn in? Father, those of us who have known Jesus by his grace for many, many years, this morning, would we see this incomprehensible being more clearly? Would our hearts be turned and would the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace? We ask these things desperately in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, the main idea that I'm going to submit to you that I believe comes easily from the text is this, that Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than angels. And you might say the earth is round and the sky is blue and, and this here is also true. That's right. This is a pretty, pretty elementary thing. And yet, this is what the author of the book of Hebrews, the pastor, wants us to understand this morning. 
obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. How do I come to this conclusion, this obvious one, that Jesus is better than angels? Well, let's walk through and see. This last week, we looked at seven propositions about the Son of God, the one that God has now sent. In time past, he's been sending prophets, and they've spoken to God's people, but now it says he is speaking to us through his Son. And then the writer goes on to tell us seven things about the Son of God. And just because we have to stop somewhere, unfortunately, I didn't actually tell you that there was an eighth one. We only talked about seven, but there's actually eight. And the eighth one here in this opening treaty from this book is found in verse four. And so let's go ahead and get ready to underline that. Last week, I challenged you to to write in your Bibles. I know some of you, that's the, the great unpardonable sin. I assure you it is not. But I want to encourage you, if you underlined those seven propositions, then underline this eighth. If you circled it, then circle this one or highlight it and so on and so forth. This is what I want you to underline. In verse four, it says, speaking of Jesus, the Son of God, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Highlight whichever part you'd like, but the, the, cent, the, the centerpiece of it is much superior to angels as the name he has inherited. Much superior to angels as the name he has inherited. The first few verses have started out letting us know that, again, God in time past had spoken to his people through prophets, and now he has spoken to them through his son. And we wonder, how does this verse 4 connect back to the first three verses? What connects them together? Well, it's more than this, just that 4 is the, it contains the eighth proposition about Jesus or piece of information. It's more than that. It's uh, actually connecting and demonstrating the connection between the Old Testament prophets and angels. Generally speaking, the angels in the Old Testament that we read of, they were thought to occupy the role of revealing God's word to God's prophets. And what's more is uh, it was widely believed and understood that the law had been mediated to man through angels to Moses. Moses is the greatest prophet that the the Jews had known. He'd given the the Jews the first five books of the Old Testament containing the law, helping them to to understand the, the purpose and point of the temple or the tabernacle. And so the connection that the writer is helping us to see here is that, yes, Jesus is superior to the prophets, But even more than that, he's superior to the angels that gave God's message to those prophets. Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 53 confirm that for us. If you're taking notes this morning, if if you write in your margin, I would encourage you to write that uh, that down. Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 53. It helps us to see that the angels did, in fact, give the law from God to Moses. God has spoken in time past to his people. But now he's, and and, and through the prophets, and now more excellently, he's spoken through his son. Finally, he has spoken through his son. And of course, he is greater than the prophets. And even more than that, he is greater than the angels that delivered that message to the prophets. And so this is how the author helps us to transition into this portion that deals with angels and Jesus' superiority over them. Considering verse 4, I also want to address this idea of Jesus having become. 
I want to take a moment and alleviate some concerns that you may be having as we consider what those words actually mean. Jesus has become something. I want to look at that phrase. If Jesus has become superior to angels, then we can assume at some point in time, in some way, he was not superior to them prior. How can that be true? We also know of Jesus that he is the second person of the Trinity. The very nature of God is his nature. He's the immutable, unchangeable God. And so how can he become anything? How can he change? How can he morph? It's a very important question for us to answer this morning. The superior status is in some way better now than it was before. He has become superior. He has become better than the angels. Honestly, the answer is right in front of us. So we dismissed our kids. I pointed to the point, uh, portion of the catechism that they're learning this morning, and it's found here. What sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? One who is truly human and also truly God. You see, Jesus, from eternity past, was divine in his nature, equal with God. And as a result of the covenant of redemption that the Trinity conferred and determined together, they determined to redeem mankind from sin and from death. And each member of the Trinity would play a unique role necessary to the securing of the salvation of the people of God. That's what, again, theologians call the covenant of redemption. The Father had determined that he would send the Son. He would be begotten of the Father. The Son determined in obedience that he would be required to take on a human nature in addition to his divine nature that he's had from eternity past. Never having been created, always existing, this person of the Trinity, the Son, would add to himself a human nature. And in his humanity, what would he do? He would humble himself and die for the sin of his people. And he would rise again and return to the Father. We looked at that last week. The Spirit would apply the work, though, that the Son had accomplished for all those who believed on the Son. And so you begin to see, in order for Jesus to accomplish his portion of the covenant of redemption, he would need to possess, in addition to his superior divine nature, superior to the angels, he would have to add to himself a person, or I'm sorry, a nature that was human. A nature that is, by the creative order, a little lower than the angels, as the book of Hebrews tells us in another passage. And that's exactly, again, what the Grace Station is learning about this morning. What sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? One who is truly human and also truly God. And so in his humanity, he has become a little lower than the angels and now superior to the angels. God the Son being most, the, the most superior divine being added to his divinity, a nature which Hebrews tells us in chapter 2 was a little lower than the angels. But in his humiliation and incarnation, he executed the role in the redemptive plan perfectly as a lamb priest. His sinless life and perfect sacrifice was presented to God on the cross in the first century A.D. And the sacrifice that he made was in fact accepted by the Father that was demonstrated by his resurrection and his following ascension into glory, where he now was received, has been received back to the right hand of the Father, and now he sits 
making intercession for us. Brothers and sisters, Jesus, the Son, is seated in the place of honor beside the, fa- beside the Father. And in this way, Jesus has, in fact, become superior to angels. Jesus cannot become in his deity, but he can become in his humanity. Luke chapter 2 tells us this clearly. He increased, increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He grew. He was a living creature. He took on flesh. He became a man. And finally, he became our sacrifice. And he became the exalted, begotten son of the Father, superior to angels. Down, down in his incarnation, but up, up in his glorification. Down in his humanity, up in his exaltation as a human and as God. In his humanity, Jesus, in fact, has become superior to the angels, and he has received a better name. That's the main idea this morning. Jesus' name is superior to the name of the angels. I want to spend some time talking about this better name. Actually, the Word of God wants to spend some time. We're just going to look at it. Better name. What constitutes this better name, this superior name? Well, these verses that follow from 5 to 14 to the end of the chapter, they give us 10 ways that I've seen in which Jesus' name has become superior to the name of the angels. And so 10 reasons Jesus' name is superior. I'll list them out as we come to them. Let's look at verse 5. For to which of the angels, the question is asked rhetorically, did God ever say, you are my son Today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. If you're taking notes in your Bible this morning or on a sheet of paper, you might want to write down uh, out besides this first quote, Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is an almost exact quotation. This first idea, how can Jesus' name be better Why is Jesus' name better? He is better because he is the Son. Because he is the Son. We looked at this a little bit last week. I'm going to look at it again briefly this morning. To any first century Jewish reader, the title Son in connection to a father would be a declaration of equality between the two of them. It's not a sign of subordination as much as it is of equality. We can actually say this confidently. You say, well, Josh, you're not a first century Jew. How do you know? Well, because I've got the writings of a first century Jew. John chapter 5, verse 18, where he, he records for us Jesus speaking of his relationship with his father. And this is what he says. He's being accused of blasphemy there in those verses. Jesus called God his own father, and he, it said that he made himself equal in that statement with God. It was never said of any other angel, any other messenger of God, this is my son. Jesus is better than angels. Why? Because he is the son of God, which means that he is equal to the father. And I see in creed, an ancient creed states it this way, Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God, begotten of the father before all worlds, God of God, Light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. The first and most obvious reason 
the author wants us to see under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, even here in the 21st century, is that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, equal with the Father of the same substance. He emanates from the Father. He's the Son. He's begotten of the Father. And this is the second reason he has a better name than the angels. He is begotten. He is better because he is begotten. Begotten, as we saw last week, is a generational term. It means to become the father of or to be proceeding from. My children proceed from me. Your children proceed from you. You proceeded from your parents. It seems like an odd word to describe one who is alleged by the Holy Scriptures to have always existed. And so how do we bring these two together again? This term is being applied to Jesus, and it doesn't speak of his beginning as we've already seen established. He is from of old, before time began. He is eternal, having always existed like the Father and the Spirit. And so in what way is he begotten? Well, C.S. Lewis helps us, as he often does. Listen to this quote. We don't use the words begetting or begotten much in our modern English, but everyone still knows what they mean. To beget is to become the father of. To create is to make. And the difference is this. When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies. A beaver begets little beavers. And a bird begets eggs, which turn into little birds. But when you make, you make something of a different kind from yourself. A bird makes a nest. A beaver builds a dam and a man makes a wireless set, or a telephone, or whatever that means. I don't even know. <laughs> Do you catch the difference here? Beget and make. To beget something is to, to bring into existence something that is the same, of the same substance as you. And to make something is totally different. By contrast, angels are made while the Son is begotten. He's of the same essence as the Father. He's the same kind as the Father. And this is the point. It doesn't speak of his beginning. It doesn't speak of time at all. It only speaks of his nature, of his essence, of his substance. And so he's superior to the angels in that he is begotten of the Father and not made by the Father. He's always existed, and that's the point of begotten. Is that the only way that Jesus is superior to the angels? Well, we're just getting started. There's eight more. And so let's look at verse six. It says, and again, when he, the father, brings the firstborn into the world, he says, we'll stop there. When the father brings the firstborn into the world, this is a reference to Jesus' incarnation. He always existed from time past in heaven. God is a spirit, so is the son. And yet there was a point in history, in the incarnation, when Jesus, as we referenced earlier, became a man. It did not lessen his deity. He added to himself humanity. And he came and dwelt among us. This is what's meant when he's brought into the world as the firstborn. And yet still, he's referred to as the firstborn. How in the world could Jesus be the firstborn? Well, we'll answer that. But know this, number three, that's why Jesus is better than angels. He, in fact, is the firstborn. Born. Again, not knowing much about Jewish Hebrew culture, and maybe you don't either, we're learning together and we're allowing the Word of God to teach us that. And so, what does it mean, this idea of firstborn? In Jewish culture, 
the firstborn son is not always the firstborn son. That doesn't make sense, does it? Well, it doesn't for us, but let me explain. Let me show you what the scriptures teach us. Remember Esau, he's older than Jacob, but Jacob was called what? The firstborn. He's the prototokos. Genesis chapter 43, verse 3, establishes clearly what the firstborn actually means. This is in reference to the firstborn, Reuben. And this is what the word of God says. Genesis 49, verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Why is that even in there? I know why. At least in part, and I think chiefly, because it wants us to see that Jesus is the firstborn. Though he's not the first man to walk this earth, he is God's might. He is the beginning of God's strength. He is the preeminence of God in dignity, and he is preeminent in God's power. Might, strength, dignity, power, all of these terms and more describe this role of firstborn. It doesn't mean the first to, to walk this earth. It doesn't mean the first to open the womb. It means preeminent. First among those like the father. Verse six. And again it says, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Jesus is the preeminent one. He's the preeminent man. He's the preeminent one sent from God. And yet he alone, the firstborn, when he comes into this world, it's said of him, let all God's angels worship him. That's a Deuteronomy 32 quote. If you want to write that in, your, in the side there. And so that actually lines up well and leads us right into the fourth way that Jesus' name is better than the angels. Not only is it better because he is the firstborn, he's the preeminent one, but because of his preeminence, because he is of the Father, he is to be worshipped, which is exactly what we read. Let all God's angels worship him. There's never a call in Scripture for anyone to worship angels. Actually, the exact opposite is what we read. Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 through 19. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism or worshiping of angels. We're told clearly, we're commanded clearly not to worship angels. And the angels, along with all of creation, are actually commanded to do, to do the opposite. We're commanded to worship the Son, the preeminent one that comes from the Father. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. And if he is worthy of the angels' worship, as we see in Deuteronomy 32 and as we see in Hebrews 1, then surely he is worthy of yours as well. He's better because he alone is to be worshipped. The Scripture says of the angels, he says he makes his angels winds, in verse 7, and his ministers a flame of fire, and in contrast of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is a quote from Psalm 104, verses 1 through 5. The contrast is continuing. Jesus is preeminent. He's the firstborn. He alone is to be worshipped. 
And continuing to unpack that, when we worship God, we recognize that he is better than the angels. He is better than all things. Why? Because, number five, he reigns eternally. He reigns and he reigns eternally. Verse seven states that God makes his ministers. Now the point is that he makes his ministers, what? A flame of fire But it's also clear to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God the Father makes angels. He makes his ministers. There's a point in time where angels came into time and space. Where they didn't exist before, there was a point where they began to exist. This is different from God the Father. And this is different from God the Son. The Son has always obeyed the Father. He's always done the will of the Father, and He's always existed. And yet the angels, that cannot be said of them. While the angels that serve God the Father today have not rebelled against Him, they have not always existed. And this is a minor point, but it's a point that the Scripture is making for us. Jesus is not made. Jesus is begotten. The angels are made. Jesus has eternally reigned, and the angels have only temporally served. And even here, the angels are likened to fire and to wind, two things that come and go, two things that are bound by the space-time continuum, their natural and short-lived substance in comparison to Jesus, the Son of God. The writer literally quotes out of Psalm 104, God who creates the wind and he creates fire, says, rides on them. They serve him. Their point is service to God. Their point is service to Christ. Christ reigns eternally, and they serve temporally. It will never end. And by the way, in case you're wondering, I want to address this. Did you catch what God the Father says about God the Son in this passage, these, these verses particularly there in verse 8. It's one of the greatest single proofs of the deity of Christ that we could find in our Bible. The Father himself, speaking of the Son, what does he say? You, God. Of the angels, God the Father, speaking of the angels, says, I've made my angels winds, and I've made them ministers of fire. But of the Son, God's still speaking, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The vision here is God the Father speaking into time and space, speaking over the earth, looking to his Son, the second person of the Trinity, full deity, full humanity, and he looks into his eyes and he says, your throne, God, is forever and ever. As I reign in heaven, you reign there on earth. It's yours. You reign eternally. He continues, though, to contrast the angels. That's not true of them. They're temporary. They serve. Jesus is eternal, and he reigns. And I want you to notice something. Jesus in his glory is not stepping on the angels as if they're lesser creatures than we or unworthy of us admiring or even reverencing. We're listening to. That's not what's happening here. It's not what we need to do. We don't need to, in order to elevate Jesus, tear something down. We only need to compare the two and see how much glorious Jesus is than all created things. What a great devotional thought for us. 
as we live our Christian life. What in your life have you not compared recently to Jesus? What is Jesus not superior to? That's not to say that we, if we're focused on our families or focused on our careers or focused on being financially secure, that we should shun those things and stamp on them and turn away. No, but we should, in light of those things, we should look to the glory of Christ and how much greater these lesser things are, he is than these lesser things. Jesus is better. Why? Because he's not temporary. He's eternal. Because he doesn't just serve as he did here on earth in his humility, but now he reigns. He reigns. Continuing to read there, picking up at the end of verse 8, it says that God, whose throne is established forever and ever, has a scepter. It says the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and you've hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Again, the writer of Hebrews, knowing the, the Old Testament very, very well, is quoting from Psalm 45. Scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. He's saying the ideal righteousness that we've never seen, that we've never experienced, that we could never emulate by government here on this earth, the scepter, the ideal scepter of rightness is the exact scepter that you use to govern your kingdom. There's no difference between the two. The very essence of righteousness is the essence of your kingdom. He goes on to say, God, speaking to God, the Son, says, you have loved righteousness and you've hated wickedness. It's almost impossible for any of us, even walking with Christ, even having the Spirit in us, apart from Him, we would not be able to say that we loved righteousness. Not like Jesus. But even some of us could say, we do. Because of the work of the Spirit, we've begun to love righteousness. We've begun to love what's holy and what's good and what God says is right. And yet there's still this part of us that still loves wickedness at the same time. There's a way that we could in our flesh and in our spirit, love righteousness and also love wickedness. But this is not what's said of the Son of God who rules eternally. It says that he loved righteousness and he hates wickedness. And as a result of this, the Son of God would reign eternally here in his church and eternally on this world it says, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with an oil of gladness beyond your companions. And so number six, how is Jesus' name better than the angels? It's better because he is righteous. In his humanity, facing all the same temptations that we have faced, tempted in every way like as we are yet without sin, he became a little lower than the angels, and now he has obtained a name that is more superior. Why? Because of his righteousness. He's not only righteous as the angels are, but he's obedient to the will of the Father. And additionally, Jesus also loves righteousness. There's no root of rebellion in him. In his nature, he is unable to sin against the Father. He's unable to sin against himself. He's righteous, as the scriptures say, altogether. And now continuing on to verse 10. 
Continuing this comparison of Jesus and the angels, it says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a, roll, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Here again, we see this Jewish writer quoting from the Old Testament, this time from the Psalms, chapter 102, verses 25 to 28. Psalm 102, 25 to 28. Here's the summary, the the gist of what this passage means. The idea is that everything contained in the space-time continuum, everything that has come into being, that has ever existed, it was rolled out like a new rug. It was rolled out like a set of brand new clothes by the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we saw in verse two is the creator of all the world. And so in what way, number seven, in what way is Jesus better than the angels? His name is better because he is the creator. He's even the creator of the angels. He's the creative agent in all of time, throughout all of time. The writer is pointing back to verse 2. He created the world. He rolled it out. And quickly, verse or number 8, he'll roll, out a, he'll roll this old one up and he'll remake it. And he'll roll out a new one. He stands outside of time and space. And he creates everything. And there'll come a point in his time, there'll come a point in our time, in his reign, where he'll roll it all up and he'll roll a new one out. And he'll make all things new, as the scriptures promise us. Now, we've all had a pair of shoes that we really loved. We've all had a pair of jeans, and maybe you're really crafty, and you make yourself a leather wallet, or you make yourself a dress. You've last, you, you loved it. You wore it all the time. You used it all the time. But then there was a time where you realized you had to replace it. Well, you didn't beget anything like yourself. You made something totally different. And then there comes a time where it wears itself out or it's worn out and it needs to be replaced. You live on, but your wallet needs to be replaced. You live on, but your neat jeans need to be sewn up. I, that's, if that's still the, the, uh, the thing to do. Your shoes wore out, but you need a new pair of shoes. Here's the idea. Jesus, number seven, he is better than the angels because he is the creator. And number eight, quickly and And easily, he is better than the angels because he is the re-creator. He is the one who will recreate the heavens. He will recreate the earth. One commentator reminds me, and now he reminds you, the things that we can see and feel seem so permanent. Like the people Peter warned, we are tempted to think that all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Quoting Second Peter chapter 3. But he goes on to say, but all these things are going to perish and the Lord is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. The creation will be changed, but not the creator. Thy years will come to an end. Christ is eternal. He is immutable. He never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Men come and go. Worlds come and go. Stars, yes, they come and go. Angels were subjected to decay as their fall proves, but Christ never changes. He's never subject to change. 
He is never subject to alteration. He is eternally the same. He is therefore superior to angels in title, in worship, in nature, in existence, and finally, in destiny. He will outlast this earth, and he'll make a new one. He'll roll this one up, and he'll roll out another. And I'm sure that as he does, as he creates that new world, just as they cheered when he created the first, the angels will cheer again on the sidelines as he makes all things new. That's what the scriptures tell as God, through the, God the Father, through the Son, was creating the world, the scriptures tell us that the angels sang and cheered. They celebrated that God, the one they worshipped, was making this creation. And I'm confident they'll sing and clap again when he makes all things new. But the scriptures go on. We've only seen eight. What about nine? Look at verse 13. Another question, rhetorical question here. And to which of the angels has he ever said? Did God ever say this to an angel? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Again, this is a quotation straight out of the psalm, Psalm 110. It's a comparison between the angels and God. And what do we see? God the Father saying to God the Son, he's saying, you can have a seat. You can sit down. By contrast, what does God tell the angels when they're in his presence? Well, we're not exactly sure of what goes on in the inner workings and inner chambers of heaven, but we can see from Luke chapter 1, verses 19, the angel comes and says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. As you contrast, and that's not the only passage that we see that where angels introduce themselves and say, I stand in the presence of God. And so any Hebrew listener, and now you, as you hear the Father speaking to the Son, saying, sit at my right hand, he is saying, sit in the place of honor. Your work is completed. Angels, you stand. You have work yet to be done. This is my Son. You are my servant. And what does this indicate? Verse 9, or number 9, the, the ninth way that Jesus' name is better is that Jesus sits. Why? Because he is victorious. And the Father says, sit while I make the, your enemies your footstool. It's a sign of victory. It's a sign of dominance. It's a sign of eternal reign. It's a sign of being incomparable, being above all. And so number nine, Jesus is better because he is victorious. What do we see in Revelation chapter 19, verses 15 through 16? That passage gives us a vivid picture of Jesus' second coming. And he will return. What does it say will happen when he returns? Speaking of the son coming from the father's side and from his mouth, comes a sharp sword so that he will smite the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's victorious. He's got a better name. His name is the Son. How is he described? He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. Who can stand before him? None. Who can deny him? None. Who can withstand his reign? None. Of the Son, the Scriptures teach us that one day every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
How is Jesus better? He's victorious. He's victorious in every way. He reigns for all eternity, having conquered all. Who can stand before him? None. So what's the conclusion then? Where does the plan, uh, the, the, the plane land this morning? In verse 14. The conclusion is this. In comparison to God, the Son, are they, the angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? You see the contrast. Verse 14 is saying, God the Son is not ministering to the saints like the angels are. God the Son has come into this earth to redeem. And as he's redeeming, the angels are serving. As he is conquering, the angels are cheering. They're ministering servants. The greatest, most terrible creature that, that one can imagine. You might think, well, it's a, it's a great whale. Or maybe it's a, a, a poisonous snake. Beautiful as a lion is, they're frightening. But the most terrible creature that we can come face to face with is the one sent from the very throne room of God, one that stands in his presence. And we see this happening all the time. Angels, as they are received by humans, are, they have a mixed response, and it's always terrible. The command often that comes out of the mouth of an angel is, fear not. And why? Because they are a fearful, fearful creature. In one sense, it makes sense for us to confuse, in a, in a way, Jesus with angels. When you think about angels, you think these have come from the very throne room of God. And by the way, Hebrews, we'll see this in a couple months, Hebrews says that we've entertained, some of us, angels unawares. But at any rate, these messengers that bring God's word to earth can often be the most terrible thing that we run into. If you think about Jesus when he first came to this earth, what do we see happening? Well, Jesus, in his divinity, he comes and he's wrapped and swaddled in humanity. He looks unassuming. As humanity wraps him, so do humble linens. And where it supports him, the right hand of the, of the Father's throne, no, uh, a manger potentially filled with hay. Unpretentiously, there the Son of God eternally wrapped in humanity lays in a manger. Nobody's afraid of him. There's no terror in the eyes of those who look on. Only joy and only love. And yet in contrast, those to whom the angels announce this coming of the Son of God incarnate, how are they received? Absolutely terrified. There they are on the hillside with their sheep. The Son of God has come quietly into existence, into time and space. And the angels come into time and space, so to speak, bursting through the clouds, scaring the, the shepherds half to death. The ones whom the angels arrived to tell, they scared. While the arrival of the angels was far more terrible, we must remember the reason why those angels arrived. Scary as they were, why had they come? 
what were they announcing? They were announcing the arrival of the one that they worship. They were uh, coming at the arrival to announce the arrival of the one that had brought them into existence. The one who gave them their orders. The one who they served. They'd come to announce King Jesus. And while they're announcing Jesus is saving, it's just as in creation. The angels are celebrating. Jesus is creating. Jesus is redeeming. The angels are rejoicing. Jesus is reigning. The angels are serving. And so what do we see in the very end? Number 10, how in the world is Jesus' name better than these terrible angels? Because Jesus is not a servant. Jesus is a king. He's not serving the angels. The angels are serving him. He's the son. He reigns eternally with the father. Angels only serve to minister to those who are being saved. While Jesus is the one who has saved them. Pastor Jay Adams, he, he asks of this, uh, this particular passage. He says, if these things are true, these 10 things about Jesus, these few verses, and he says they most certainly are, why in the world would you turn away? Of what, of what moment is the temporary pain and suffering that one must endure here when compared with all that there is in Jesus? When you think of the better name that Jesus has, when you consider why it is that the Spirit of God would, would, would cause this man to write this book that we could have so many years preserved, why would he do that? He wants us to know that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of distraction, that Jesus is better. He's better than all things, and surely he's better than angels. Where did we start this morning? We ask the question, is comparison indeed the thief of joy? Has your mind changed at all than when you first walked in? Is comparison for you the thief of joy? Let me offer this. Comparison is the thief of joy, but only when your joy is founded on the lesser. Comparison is, in fact, the thief of joy, but only when your joy is founded on the lesser of the two. So if you wish to compare shampoo, this one to that one, and this person to yourself, and, and you to this other person, and them together, don't stop there. Keep comparing. Compare whatever you wish. But in the end, compare them to the Son of God. Compare them to the one sent by God in these last days. And I promise you this, on the authority of God's word that your joy will not be stolen. It will not be lost. It will only be further established. Brothers and sisters, one of the ways that we express the joy that we find in Christ that is incomparable is by observing the Lord's Supper. That's what we're going to do here right now. As we come near to the Lord's table to celebrate the communion of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, we come and we are grateful as we remember that the Lord gave us this supper. He gave us this ordinance so that our joy would remain full and the things of this earth would continue to grow strangely dim. And so we come to the table remembering him dying for our sake. We come to this table remembering the pledge of his undying love for us. We come to this table reminding us that he has invited us to greater love. 
and to something that is impervious to time and to decay and is, in fact, incomparable. This consecrated time at the Lord's table is for believers, believers in Christ, who have rested all their hope on the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. That's what Christians believe. Christians truly believe that Jesus lived, he died, and he rose from the dead. We believe, Christians believe, that Jesus died not just for the sins of the world, but that he died for our sins. We believe that he was raised for our justification. We believe that he'll return again in glory as the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And here's my request of you. If you don't yet believe that, if you can't say that Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, if you can't say that you are placing your trust in his finished work this morning, then I would ask you that you refrain from partaking of the bread and the cup. There's nothing here at this table. There's nothing new here. It's only a memory of what has already been accomplished. There's no grace at this table, but it reminds us of the grace that we've already received and the the grace that Christians enjoy day by day. So if you don't yet believe that, I ask that that you not partake. Not until you're ready. Additionally, I ask you to only partake if you're a baptized believer and you're a member of a local church. Maybe it's not this local church, but it's some other local church. And maybe it's not a local church that practices formal church membership. And if that's the case, but you're still committed to that local church, then I invite you to this table if you're walking with the Lord. If you're a member of another gospel preaching church and you're with us, we're so glad that you're here. We want to invite you here. We welcome you to take the supper with us this morning. If you're not committed to that gospel preaching church in your area, if you've not been baptized, I want to ask you to wait. Consider the meaning of the meal and actually come and partake when you've joined yourself to a body of believers, a body of believers, and then partake. On the other hand, though, if you're harboring unconfessed sin this morning before God, I echo the words of Jesus and I ask you to make that right by confession and repentance before God, before you come to this table. And so I want to invite you with those things in mind to spend some time reflecting on the sermon, the glory of Christ, the the glory of his sacrifice, the incomparable joy that we have been given as Christians that we're reminded of by this small wafer in this tiny cup. Do you examine your own selves as the music begins to play?